Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning is from Proverbs chapter 25, verses 4 and 5. Take away the dross from silver, and it will go to the silversmith for jewelry. Take away the wicked from before the king, and his throne will be established in righteousness. For millennia, mankind has been attracted to silver. Unlike other metals, it reflects all visible wavelengths of light, giving it a unique white metallic appearance. But in nature, silver is never found in this attractive state. Instead, it is mixed with other less desirable, desirable metals. These metals are the dross. To obtain pure silver, it has to be separated from that dross. In ancient times, this was accomplished by heating the metal to over a thousand degrees Fahrenheit until it melted. The dross would then rise to the top, form a crust that was then blown off the surface of the melted silver. It's reported that the silversmith would know that the dross was fully removed when he could see his reflection in the silver. Then and only then could it be used for his craft, the creation of beautiful and valuable objects. This morning's text, however, speaks of something far more beautiful than silver. It speaks of a treasure that is of greater value than any precious metal. It speaks of righteousness. And like a king would seek after material riches, we should be pursuing righteousness. Jesus commanded us to do so. He said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But like silver, righteousness requires a purification process. That process is sanctification. The dross of wickedness must be removed in order for righteousness to flourish. Solomon states it plainly, take away the wicked from before the king and he will be established in righteousness. Evil influences can corrupt. A king relied upon the wise counsel of other men for his successful reign. If these men were wicked, the king could be led astray, and he and his kingdom would fall. It mattered to whom the king listened. Who we are listening to also matters. Are we allowing God's word and the counsel of godly people to shape us? Or do we let popular media influence our thinking? Do we take parenting advice from our pastor or elders or other Christian parents? Or do we turn to psychologists, secular psychologists? Are we believing that all scripture is the inerrant word of God and useful for training in righteousness? Or does the counsel of God take a back seat to conventional wisdom and modern thinking? In our sanctification, we do have a part to play and we must be on our guard against the influence of wicked people and evil influences. But sanctification isn't just eliminating the evil influences that are around us. It is also the process of removing the dross that is within us. Solomon's advice for obtaining a righteous kingship is good, but it's not complete. Take away the wicked from before the king. Yes, but what about the king's wickedness in his own heart? He certainly is not excluded from Jeremiah's description of the heart. It is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So it is important for us to remember that even if we take away all the possibly evil influences, television, for example, or rated R movies, non-Christian friends, liberal news sources, pop music, public school, the list could go on. 
Even if we shield ourselves and our children from all of them, we still have a sinful heart that must be cleansed. This is why we need Jesus. He is our refiner and the one who sanctifies us. Paul writes that he gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people. But too often we don't want the purification process. We want a comfortable and pleasurable life on our own terms. All too often we don't want the silver. We settle for and sometimes even pursue the dross. Like the fire of the silversmith, the trials of life burn and hurt, and the pursuit of righteousness is hard work. But it is all the design of a loving God who desires to see his own reflection in each of us. God's word this morning has reminded us of our need to confess our sins. So if you're willing and able, please kneel with me as we confess our sins to God. front, you'll notice that today is Transfiguration of our Lord Sunday. It's the last Sunday of the season of Epiphany, and in this, so on this Sunday we remember our Lord's Transfiguration, what we just read about in the scripture readings. And God is the one who orchestrates all these things, and, and as Cameron was teaching on Proverbs this morning and talking about fire and silver and how silver is refined by the fire. Today we're talking about the consecration offerings in the Old Testament and the consecration portion of our covenant renewal worship service. And the transfiguration is a picture again of that fire that, that transfigures, that the glory of God that, that burns anything unholy. It, it cleans, it separates. As, as we saw with Elijah, he goes up into heaven on a chariot of fire with horses of fire, and he's, he's separated from Elisha. Because the holiness of God cannot bear the presence of wickedness. And so he cleanses his worshipers by fire and by water so that we can enter into his presence and we can be a pleasing aroma to him, a pleasing thing in his sight. Last week we talked about the confession of sin and the sin offering, the trespass offering. And in there we saw that in covenant with us, God provides a sacrificial substitute for us. The emphasis in those sacrifices was blood. God atones for our sins and he opens the way for us to come into his presence, to meet him. Once we've been cleansed, we are invited in to enter into the holy places, into God's presence, and the result is consuming fire. Like the ascension offering, which we're going to be studying today, we are skinned, cut up, burned up, and God metaphorically eats us. We're consumed by His holiness. Like the sacrifice, we are lifted into His presence in the smoke, the glory cloud, and there... We are made holy. We're consecrated. We are set apart for His use, for, for His work. All of us, every one of us, and all of us 
our whole body, soul, spirit, flesh, and mind are transformed by His holiness, by His glory. We're transformed from meat and bones and fat into smoke. We're transformed from seed into plant. We're transformed from death into life. We're transformed from filthy rags into righteous, glorious white robes. We're transformed from flesh into spirit. Likewise, all that we have, all that belongs to us, is consecrated and set apart and made holy for His service. You are going to notice as we study the consecration portion of our worship service that there's a heavy emphasis on the Word, on the Bible. Confessing the Word, reading the Word, and preaching the Word are the primary emphases of this section of our worship service. Also, the reception of tithes is an appropriate response to the Word. So these emphases in, the worship, in, the, in our worship service resonate from the Old Testament worship services. Specifically, the Ascension Offering and the Grain Offering. And we read about the Ascension Offering in Leviticus 1 and the Grain Offering in Leviticus 2. So I'm going to read now Leviticus 1, verses 1 through 9. Now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the livestock, of the herd, and of the flock. If his offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. He shall kill the bull before the Lord and the priests. Aaron's son shall sprinkle, bring the blood and sprinkle the blood all around on the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall skin the burnt offering and cut it into its pieces. The sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and lay the wood in order on the fire. Then the priests, Aaron's sons, shall lay the parts, the head, and the fat in order on the wood that is on the fire upon the altar. But he shall wash its entrails and its legs with water, and the priest shall burn all on the altar as a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. So this offering is called the burnt offering or the ascension offering, and ascension offering is a better term for it. The Hebrew word is olah, and it means going up, rising. And the, the focus of the emphasis there is, is talking about this the whole sacrifice is burned on the altar and it rises in the smoke to God it, it's something that God appreciates that God enjoys that's pleasing to him it's a, a sweet aroma to the Lord and this as, as the the last sacrifices we studied the 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 sin offering and the trespass offering emphasized the blood and the sprinkling seven times in front of the veil and and so forth this sacrifice emphasizes the cutting up of the animal. So the skinning, the cutting up of the animal and ordering its pieces on, on the altar, even ordering the wood right on the altar. It, it emphasizes washing the entrails and the legs and burning the entire sacrifice there. So skinning, cutting up, and arrangement, ceremonial cleansing, so washing and, and burning it. Now the next 
eight verses, verses 10 through 17, outline the same treatment for the other acceptable ascension offerings. A, a ram, a male goat, or a dove or pigeon. There's a little bit of a different approach towards a dove and pigeon, uh, but the gist is the same. Skinning, division, cleansing, they remove the crop, and, and then splitting it and burning it on, on the fire. The point is for the offering to ascend into God's presence by fire, resulting in a sweet aroma to the Lord. The sacrifice remains an atoning substitute for the worshiper. But in this sacrifice, the worshiper offers himself to God for God's service in the representative offering of the sacrifice. He says, as this animal is consumed for God's, God's pleasure, He's, it's doing it, but he's doing it vicariously through the animal. Now, for him to do it in reality, he would be truly burned up by God's presence. So that's why he needs this atoning sacrifice to cover him. But then God receives the worshiper along with his sacrifice in favor. God is pleased with the ascension offering. Leviticus 2 shows us the, the, the grain offering. The burnt offerings were usually offered in tandem with the grain offering. So when, when we read about the worship service in the Old Testament, you, they would offer the sin offerings and then the whole burnt offerings and, and grain offerings. They, they went together. So the, they, they were offered in tandem. Leviticus 2 verses 1 through 3. When anyone offers a grain offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour, and he shall pour oil on it, and put frankincense on it. He shall bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests, one of whom shall take from it his handful of fine flour and oil with all the frankincense, and the priest shall burn it as a memorial priest, as a memorial on the altar, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. The rest of the grain offering shall be Aaron's and his sons. It is most holy of the offerings to the Lord made by fire. So they would bring their grain offering. They would the, the priests would take a, 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 a memorial portion, a handful of it, and burn it on the fire for a sweet-smelling aroma to God. And the remainder was the income for the for the priests. It was it was for the priests and their families for the provision of the temple. In the next seven verses, we see that the grain offering could also come in many forms. It could come, it could be flour with oil and frankincense as the first one, but it could also be unleavened cakes or wafers mixed with oil. It could be baked flour with oil, and the priests would burn a memorial portion, and the remainder was for them. Now we see a, a, pro, a prohibition in verse 11 against offering a grain offering that has leaven in it. Verses 11 and 12. No grain offering which you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall burn no leaven nor any honey in any offering to the Lord made by fire. As for the offering of the first fruits, you shall offer them to the Lord, but they shall not be burned on the altar for a sweet aroma. Now, so we see the prohibition of leaven, and the reason that leaven was prohibited is because leaven was something that was seen as correlative to decay. But 
they, and they were prohibited from offering the offering of the first fruits because that was the offering of Pentecost. And they were commanded to, to offer a loaf of leavened bread at Pentecost. So what they said for the, the offering of Pentecost, they would, they would be acceptable to the Lord, but it would not be burned because the, the altar was not a place for leaven to go. Next we see that all the sacrifices were to be seasoned with salt. Verse 13, And every offering of your grain offering you shall season with salt. You shall not allow the salt of the covenant of your God to be lacking from your grain offering. And all your offerings you shall offer salt. So salt is a, a, a preservative and a flavor enhancer. And as such it represented the permanence of the covenant and it enhanced the pleasing flavor and aroma of the sacrifices. And then the final instruction is verses 14 to 16 where it talks about offering first fruits offerings that were offered on a given in fire they would take whole grain heads and throw them on the altar and burn them as a pleasing aroma but uh, they were first fruits offerings but they didn't have leaven which is why they they could be offered there the grain offerings were offerings that were given from the produce of the land and from the livelihood of the israelites so they would plant their seed, they would grow their crops, and then the, the grain that came, the first, the first grain that, that went through the mill, the first flour that came out of the mill was part was the, the, the first fruits offering. And so and as the ascension offering consecrated the people themselves, the grain offerings consecrated the wealth of the people. The memorial portion is a representative of all that belongs to the people. So when they offer their entire offering to the priests, and the priest burns a memorial portion of it on the altar, that sanctifies the entire offering, but the offering itself is a memorial portion of all that the Israelites have. So all that they own is then sanctified in this offering. Now these purification offerings are the sacrifices which inform the consecration portion of our covenant renewal worship services. In Romans 12, we see the sanctifying of men in their sacrificial service to God. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So we have this sanctification of us by, by being transformed by God's word. We're made holy. Holiness. Being set apart. Offering everything that we are and everything that we have to God we are, we, is done so that we may be a sweet-smelling aroma to Him. And that is the purpose of this portion of the worship service. The, that the portion that goes from the, uh, our, our service, it starts right at the offering of the, uh, the congregational prayer, and it goes all the way through the sermon. So let us talk about each of the sections that we, we have here in, in, the, in this portion of the service regularly. The first one is baptism and church membership. Now we don't, this is an occasional service, we don't do this every week. But occasionally, when we have somebody to baptize, or somebody is joining the church, when we insert that into our worship service, it takes place right at the beginning of our consecration portion of the service. We include these in the service 
there because it is appropriate to consecrate individuals in their baptisms and families in membership for God's service in this portion of the service. In baptism, the baptized person is ceremonially cleansed, washed, and offered to God for his service. And this is illustrated by Paul um, in Ephesians 5. He talks about Christ washing, uh, washing us with by water through the or through water by the word. Um, and we're going to get to that passage in a little bit, but. But note that baptism is appropriate in the service, but it's not necessary for us to do it in the service. It's also appropriate to do baptisms before the service, or after the service, or in, in its own service at another time when, when the person is being drawn, brought into the church, as we did with um, Samantha a few weeks ago because of logistical reasons. Uh, it's difficult to, to, dunk, uh, to dunk here. <laughs> But if we could, we would. Um, now, church membership vows are taken here in the service also, specifically because they are a reaffirmation of the baptismal vows, and for the same reasons. It's, it's appropriate to consecrate individuals and families here. The congregational prayer comes next in our service. And here I just want to refer back to what we said about prayer a few weeks ago, that prayers are, are sacrificial offerings, and the Bible makes specific connections between the offerings of prayers of the saints and the sweet-smelling incense burned in worship. The Lord loves to hear His people talking to Him. It smells good to Him. It, it's a sweet-smelling aroma. And the emphasis on the fire and the sweet smelling, smells of the ascension offerings combines well with the sweet incense that is offered to God in our prayers. Additionally, prayers have a very sanctifying or consecrating effect on the person who prays, on those who pray. In the Psalms, we see the psalmist crying out to God in praise and sometimes in torment for justification or, or, or over peace. They, but they ask God for their heart's desires and always land on praise and humble expectation. It's always a confession of who God is, and it's a right expression of emotions. It's a biblical way for us to communicate what our heart's desires are. But the purpose of prayer is to teach us, not God. God, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God knows the future, but he gives us prayer as a tool by which we can be consecrated, by which we can be sanctified, by which our emotions and our feelings can be, can be put in a right relationship with God by bringing them to him and offering them up to him in prayer. In voicing our prayers, we learn who we are and who he is. We learn those things, and this changes us not him. And then as we are then transformed and changed into the, his likeness and according to his will, then we ask for things aright. We desire his will to be done. And he's happy to do that for us. He answers our prayers by giving us right desires. Now, as I mentioned in the introduction of our message today, there's a heavy emphasis in this portion of the service on the word. Because it is God's word which is the primary tool for the sanctification 
of us and, for, and of the world. Thus we read scripture in this portion of the service. And I'm going to briefly point to several aspects of God's word here in the message. God's word consecrates us. 1 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So reading God's word, preaching God's word, hearing God's word preached, and praying God's word changes us to make us complete, whole. It sanctifies us. It purifies us. God's word is a sword, Ephesians 6, 17. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We see the same thing in Revelations 1, 13 through 16. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were like white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were, were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. So here we have a picture of the glorified Christ, the resurrected Christ. And his, and, and his voice sounds like many waters. And out of his mouth goes his word, which is what? A two-edged sword. And we see the same thing in Hebrews 4. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So God's word is a sword. And as such, it is exactly like the priestly knife of the ascension offering. It cuts us up. It divides us rightly, and it organizes us on the altar for his service. God's word cuts us to the quick. You can't, you can't hide sin when you're looking in the mirror of God's word, because it sees right to the very bottom of our hearts and souls. God's word, because it is that kind of word, it divides between the just and the unjust. It judges us. Jesus told us that in John 12. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. God's word is his law. It is what judges Jesus' word, he has told us what the standard is. He has told us what holiness is. He tells us what righteousness and sin are. He defines these things for us. The word explains it all for us. Jesus faithfully represents God to the world in his word. But Jesus doesn't condemn us. His word does. The, represent, the Father judges because Jesus' word is a picture of the Father. Jesus comes to save us. He says, this is God's word. And the word is this. If you will humble yourselves and repent, then my, my death will cover your sins. But his words will judge us if we refuse to do so. 
Those who reject Jesus and don't receive his words are judged by that. So finally, God's word cleanses us. It, it cleanses us. The sword divides us, and then God's word cleanses us, like the waters of baptism or like the fire on the altar. All impurities are either washed away or destroyed by the fire of God's holiness. God's word cleanses us by fire. Jeremiah 23, verse 29. Is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? This is, this is the fire of the altar. God's word blazing and just eliminating the dross, purifying our souls and our hearts and making us righteous before him because we can now see our sins so that we can confess and turn from it. It also cleanses us by water. Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. The Holy Spirit works through the word. That's water that's just cleanses us. That's why we baptize with water, is because Jesus has washed us clean from our sins. He washes by the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. We are cleansed by the word. After we read scripture, we recite the creed. And this, is, and this recitation is nothing less than a declaration that we believe God's word. Romans 10, 8 through 13. But what does it say? He's talking about the scriptures. What do the scriptures say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. And if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So we read scripture and then we confess scripture. Our creeds are a distillation of the basics of the gospel. So when we say the Nicene Creed, and when we say the Apostles' Creed, we are affirming God's word. We are affirming the gospel that he has given to us in the scriptures. Likewise, the sermon is the application of the word, and as such, it consecrates God's people. In fact, the sermon is uniquely designed to convict and to consecrate the lost. Paul tells us in Romans that, that he says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed, and how shall they believe in whom a hymn of whom they have not heard, and how shall they hear without a preacher? God's word must be preached. How shall they preach unless they are saved? God's word must be preached so that people can hear, and so that they hear, so that they can believe. God's word is specifically preached, is specifically designed to convict and to consecrate those who are lost. 
Paul was a preacher. And the result of the preaching was the sweet-smelling aroma of Christ being offered to God. He talks about his ministry this way in 2 Corinthians 2. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? So preaching is, is a glorious thing. It spreads the gospel. The, the, the gospel goes out. And, and, it, and, and he says, God leads us in triumph and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. So as the word goes out in the preaching of the word, people are either drawn to Christ or repulsed by him. But, but he is there in the preaching. He cannot be denied in the preaching. And because he is there... God leads us in triumph. What did Jesus tell us? The last thing he said before he went up into heaven. Go into all the world, making disciples, baptizing them in my name. How does that happen? It happens through the preaching of the word. As soon as Peter and the apostles receive the Holy Spirit, they preach a sermon, and about 3,000 that day were added unto them, or 5,000. Different stories, different times. It happens. Thousands of people, by the preaching of the word, are drawn to God. Christ, God leads us in triumph in Christ. And the result is a sweet-smelling aroma. The, the, the consecration of men. The sanctification of men. The holiness of God being given to men that they might then offer themselves to His service. And He takes joy in this. And so Paul's a preacher and he goes spreading the word. And what's he do? He tells... Other preachers to preach. He commanded uh, Timothy to preach. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 14. Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. And skipping down to verse 24. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance, so that they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So preaching, then, is an effective means of sharing the, the salvation of the world. God has given us a gospel. He's given us good news, and we should be excited to then go out and share it. And finally, we come to the offerings, the tithe. Tithing is a response of gratitude, and the correlation to the grain offering is just obvious here. All that we have is God's, and the portion that we give to Him is a recognition of this truth. In this, our belongings are consecrated, and we are blessed. In Philippians 4, Paul commends the Philippians for their generosity, and calls their gifts, specifically, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God, in verse 18. In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul commands that the offerings be taken weekly to store up and to provide for generosity when the need arises. And then in 2 Corinthians 9, we have the classic New Testament passage on giving. 
on tithing. And I'm going to close the sermon with this. I'm just going to read this passage. Because this is powerful. This is what tithing does. This is how God blesses His people. But this I say, He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. As it is written, he has dispersed abroad, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. While you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God, for the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. While through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for the abundance of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men and by their prayer for you who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. It's a long passage. But it's clear. God has given us everything. Our return, our giving, our tithing is a, is a cheerful duty. It's, 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 a, it's an opportunity that God gives us to obey Him and to faithfully serve Him and to be a pleasing aroma to Him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. scripture in today's message, and this is true, and I cut a lot out. This is because when we talk about consecration, God's word is front and center. Jesus comes to cut us up and divide the believers from the unbelievers, and the believers are further cut up and washed and consecrated and sanctified by fire and water and made holy to enter God's presence. This pleases him. It is a sweet-smelling aroma to him. And this faithful service is rewarded with life. God doesn't just cut us up and burn us up and drown us in water so that we will die and be destroyed. In covenant and in Jesus Christ, God does all of this so that we can have peace and fellowship and life in him. We are made holy so that we can see and understand what life is and then embrace it wholeheartedly. So come, eat, drink, relish, and enjoy the life that God pours out for you. Christ's body, broken for us. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, 
the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.